Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center. I'm Eric Rosenman, communications consultant for the JPC, and your host. Today, we're going to consider the West Bank after current Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Guiding us will be Sean Derns, Senior Research Analyst for CAMERA, the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, based here at CAMERA's Washington office. Before we go to Sean, your JPC commercial. We were established in 1985 as a 501c3 organization, providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. You can find us on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can read our Insight articles and our magazine, In Focus Quarterly. The winter issue of In Focus is now online. It is focused on an agenda for the new Congress, including the congressional role in shaping foreign policy, the economy, healthcare, and fighting anti-Semitism, among other things. As most of you know, the JPC supports a strong American defense capability, US-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. We support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny them. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPC advocates small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, and energy security, as well as free speech and intellectual diversity. In this series of talks, we have been very pleased to bring you scholars and policymakers on issues including the Abraham Accords, China and Turkey in Central Asia, the disastrous American abandonment of Afghanistan, US-Israel security relations, and the American defense budget. Now, Sean Derns on the Palestinian Game of Thrones and what it means for Israel and the United States. Sean is a senior research analyst, as I said, for the Washington Office of Camera, the 65,000 member Boston-based Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis. His writings and research have appeared in Washington Examiner Magazine, Newsweek, Fox News, Mosaic, The Jerusalem Post, National Interest, National Review, and elsewhere. He has a master's in diplomatic history from the London School of Economics, where his dissertation focused on US collective security policy in the early Cold War era Middle East. He has written several backgrounders, op-eds and essays on Palestinian politics and terrorist groups. Now, Sean will make a brief presentation for all of our participants, and then we will go to questions and answers. Sean, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Eric, and good afternoon. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Unlike the HBO series, this webinar will not feature, will not be about dragons, and it will not decidedly feature young and attractive kings and queens. But it will feature shifting alliances, the decline of a fat and vicious autocrat ruling what is tantamount to a rump state, rump state and very regrettably violence. Israel right now, and I think this merits uh, mentioned at the top of this webinar, is engulfed in a terror wave. At least 14 Israelis have been murdered in less than two months. Proportionally, this is the equivalent of 800 or so Americans, a staggering number, and one that is worth reflecting on. 
News reports are depicting this violence as a result of Israel's new governing coalition, that it is in fact new. A March 3rd, 2023 Associated Press report, for example, was headlined with West Bank in turmoil, new militants emerge. Associated Press reporter Isabel Debris asserted that groups like the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, among others, were new. She even suggested that they've been forced into their lives as terrorists. Why? Well, the lack of a Palestinian Arab state and the Shunner peace process led them to, and I quote her, take up guns against Israel's open-ended occupation, defying Palestinian political leaders whom they scorn as collaborators. Young Palestinian men in Jabba once wanted to farm, she writes, but now more and more want to fight. Those poor farmers, just like Cincinnatus and the Jeffersonian dream, they just want to hold the plow, but they're being forced to grab the sword. Other press reports have been similarly misleading, often tying, trying to connect the rise in violence to Israeli actions. Palestinians, we are implicitly told, don't have independent motivation or independent agency. They can only react. This degree of passivity can be seen in recent Washington Post reports, which have described the terror wave as, quote, a spate of shootings, end quote. Another headline blared, car rams into crowd near Jewish settlement. To use a phrase that I'd like to bring back, this is utter poppycock. It's complete nonsense. It's not self-driving cars that are committing violence, it's Palestinian terrorists. And they're doing so for two reasons, both interrelated, that the press has largely ignored. First, the unpopularity and diminishing authority of Mahmoud Abbas, the 87-year-old head of the Fatah movement that controls the Palestinian Authority, which itself rules over the majority of Palestinians in the West Bank. And second, the diminishing power of both Abbas and Fatah present the Islamic Republic of Iran with an opportunity, an opportunity to open up yet another front in their war against the Jewish state. A June 2022 poll by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research based in Ramallah found, and I quote, a significant drop in support for Fatah and its leadership. The survey of West Bank Palestinians found a significant change in the domestic balance of power in favor of Hamas. The tide has been shifting and Iran is all too aware. Indeed, the 2021 war was sparked in part by Iranian proxies increasing their activities in the West Bank and seeking to capitalize off of Fatah's declining power. And that power is ebbing thanks in large measure to Abbas. Abbas has ruled the PA since 2005 when he was elected to a single four-year term. He is now in year 18 of that term. Unlike Arafat, Abbas did not come to power with the credentials of a terrorist, which is a key resume builder in Palestinian politics, regrettably. Instead, he had served as the foreign emissary and money man for the Palestine Liberation Organization. Abbas lacked, and still lacks, Arafat's charisma. These factors and the loss of the Gaza Strip to Hamas, Fatah's Iranian-backed rival, have further crippled the Palestinian leader, who can't claim to represent all of Palestinians. Abbas has reacted by centralizing power, imprisoning, and reportedly torturing critics, expelling dissidents and rivals. He has refused to hold elections, including leading up to that 2021 war, which in part was one of the reasons why Iran chose to launch that war. The Palestinian Legislative Council hasn't even met since 2007. Laws are issued as decrees. So that brings us to today. Iran is steadily making inroads in the West Bank and increasing its presence. To be sure, Abbas has continued to pay salaries to terrorists and to those who herald 
and to herald those who murder and maim Jews. He has, on several occasions, incited violence, perhaps most infamously in 2015, when he said, we, quote, welcome every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. That pre preceded the 2015 so-called stabbing at Tafada. So it's not as if Abbas has been a, a peaceful leader. But unlike Arafat, Abbas hasn't carried out a terror campaign on the level of the, of the Second Intifada. And unlike Arafat, his predecessor, Abbas has rejected support from the Islamic Republic of Iran, the world's foremost sponsor of terror and Hamas's chief patron. A West Bank after Abbas would offer new challenges both to Israel and to American interests in the Middle East. The greatest danger, and I can't underscore this enough, comes from Tehran and its proxies. Iran is, of course, committed to Israel's destruction. The regime has trained and supported several terrorist groups, including Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Resistance Committees, among others, all of which surround the Jewish state. Indeed, the Islamic Republic's strategy is to wrap itself snake-like around Israel. And should Abbas die or be deposed, the West Bank would provide the regime with a new front. Iran seems to be planning for, for such an occurrence. The regime has been making inroads in the West Bank and capitalizing with growing fervor off of Abbas's popularity. According to the Shin Bet, Israel's domestic intelligence agency, Iran has been carrying out military intelligence operations in the West Bank for years. And as the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis has documented, Iran has been smuggling weapons into the West Bank and often using PA-ruled territories as a way station for the smuggling of both weapons and drugs into Israel including into the Jewish state's Arab communities. By smuggling arms and sowing social discord, Iran is working to destabilize the West Bank. The Shin Bet has arrested several Iranian-trained operatives in the West Bank, some of whom were reportedly planning attacks in Israel. This has been going on, I should note, for years. In 2020, for example, Israeli security services rolled up a West Bank cell of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Terrorists who were being directed from Lebanon and Syria both of which are effectively Iranian provinces. Indeed, in the years since, the tempo of Israeli counter-terror raids in the West Bank has markedly increased. This is a sign not only of Abbas's diminishing authority, but of Iran's expanding influence. Hezbollah, the Lebanese-based Iranian-backed terrorist organization, has also been active in PA-ruled areas. Once called the A-Team of Terrorist Organizations by U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage, Hezbollah possesses more missiles and rockets than almost any other country and maintains a presence on nearly every continent. It is, by a wide margin, Iran's most capable proxy, and it does have operatives in the West Bank. Indeed, in August 2022, a top IRGC commander bragged that Iran was now arming its allies in the West Bank. That commander, Hossein Salami, told Iranian state media that this was part of the regime's strategy to continue its jihad, quote, against the Zionists. There's every reason to expect that Iran would continue to capitalize off the chaos that would follow in a post-Abbas West Bank. Indeed, as Cameron detailed in a July 5th, 2021 Washington Examiner commentary, Hamas has actively encouraged anti-Abbas activities. In fact, the 2021 war was sparked largely by Hamas's desire to exploit West Bank Palestinians who were dissatisfied with Abbas's decision to cancel planned elections. Iran has both the means and the motive to take the West Bank. It has been laying the groundwork for years. Such an occurrence would be absolutely unacceptable to Israel, of course. Iran poses the only existential threat to the Jewish state's existence.
is the chief supporter of the myriad of terrorist groups that are waging war against Israel, and it is the only enemy that can wield all of the resources and capabilities of a nation state. It would be unthinkable for Iran to gain another foothold in the area, particularly on Israel's doorstep. Accordingly, should Iran seem likely to take over the West Bank, Israeli intervention would probably be a foregone conclusion. Nor would Jerusalem be alone. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan has long been weak, but surprisingly durable. The current monarch, King Abdullah II, isn't popular, and Jordan would likely be loath to intervene. Yet an Islamist power that seeks to foment revolution would be an unwanted neighbor. It is possible, indeed likely, that, Jer that Jordan would assist in some fashion any Israeli efforts to prevent Iran from taking Fatah's place. Indeed, Jordan has previously relied on Israel to prevent the rise of threats to Hashemite rule, most notably when Arafat's PLO attempted to overthrow Abdullah's father, King Hussein, more than 50 years ago. The United States would be right to support operations aimed at forestalling an Iranian takeover. Failing to do so would be tantamount to abandoning longtime allies and would erode U.S. deterrence and credibility in a region that remains key to American interests. Of course, the reason for the West Bank's vulnerability can't be overlooked or overstated. Um, I mentioned earlier the poll by Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, which found a significant drop in Fatah's support. That's the first time that Hamas has dramatically eclipsed Fatah in, in poll numbers in the West Bank. Uh, interestingly enough, I should note that uh, the figures uh, in polling from Gaza do not reflect what the figures in West Bank show. And of course, that's because uh, the Gazans actually have the experience of living under rule by an Iranian proxy. So they know that it's uh, far from ideal. Now, importantly, Abbas lacks a true designated successor. In February 2022, Abbas promoted a longtime associate to an important post. Hussein al-Sheikh, who is described by Reuters as an Abbas confidant, was named to the PLO's executive committee. In June 2022, he was appointed secretary general of the PLO, effectively making him Abbas's number two. Uh, al-Sheikh is a quarter century younger than Abbas. He seemingly has the support of the older man, as well as established relationships with Israel from when he previously served as a liaison to the Jewish state. But it would be a mistake to assume that Hussein al-Sheikh would be anointed. Like other successful autocrats, Abbas has prevented any rival centers of power from forming and gaining enough strength to challenge his rule. In February 2022, the PLO Central Council named the 73-year-old Rahi Fauta, another Abbas aide, to head the PLO's National Council. Fauta, however, is older than al-Sheikh, and he was not subsequently named to be, to be Secretary General of the PLO. There are also other potential successors. Uh, Mahmoud al-Alul, who Cameron's written about and studied uh, extensively, is the deputy chairman of, of Fatah and was called a likely successor to Abbas back in 2018. But he has seen his star fade in recent years. Uh, Alul's uh, nickname, I should note, is Abu Jihad, Father Jihad. He does have the terrorist credentials that Abbas lacks. Mohammed Sheta, the PA's prime minister, is another possibility. Abbas himself was actually briefly prime minister in 2003, but this appointment uh, was largely due uh, to Arafat uh, conceding it to the West, who was at the time pushing for Abbas. But uh, in the realm of Palestinian politics, there is at least that one precedent. And in an environment where the ethos of who holds the gun holds the power dominates, the PA's longtime intelligence head, Majid Faraj, would be able to muster considerable hard power in any potential power struggle. 
Other longtime FATA operatives, such as Jabril Rajoub and Abbas Zaki, are also possibilities. Uh, Rajoub was an imprisoned terrorist. He has run in various sports tournaments and sports leagues uh, for uh, the PA. He does not lack for street cred. Although at 70 years old, he's very much part of an older generation of Fatah. Uh, Abbas Zaki is similarly in his 70s. And the noteworthy thing about Zaki is he has expressed a willingness to receive support from Iran. Uh, such a move would be a shift back to the Arafat era. Uh, there are two commonly discussed possibilities uh, for successors for Abbas, but I, I wouldn't put much uh, credence in them. However, they're discussed enough to where I think we should mention them. Mohammed Dalan is a charismatic Abbas rival who was banished back in 2010. He's previously security chief. Dalan has spent subsequent years living in Egypt and in the Emirates. Despite his years abroad, the Abbas regime has feared him enough to have arrested several, several of his supporters, including as recently as, as 2020. Dalan and arch-terrorist Marwan Barghouti, who sits in an Israeli prison for five counts of murder, are longtime Abbas rivals. And as I noted, they're frequently mentioned by the media. Yet due to imprisonment and exile, both men, both men would face significant hurdles to claiming the throne. While it is difficult to predict who will succeed Abbas, the immediate outcome, chaos, is a near certainty. In the last century, the Palestinian movement has had only three leaders, Amin al-Husseini, Yasser Arafat, and Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, it is utterly lacking in healthy and functioning institutions and the rule of law. This problem is only worsened under Abbas with centralized power, and it has failed to be addressed by both policymakers and the press, who via money and neglect have all but enabled it. Their derelictions will soon prove costly, I fear, and it will be up for to Israelis, Palestinians, and potentially the U.S. itself to pick up that tab. Thank you. Sean, thank you. Remarkably detailed, illuminating, and timely. That uh, I just want to tell our audience what you just heard from Sean. It illuminates why I think Sean is one of the best analysts on both media coverage or miscoverage of Israel and internal Palestinian politics. And that's why, as you heard in the introduction, his work has appeared so widely. Sean, your presentation has caused me to junk my first question that I had planned to ask you and ask a question with a little historical background. You have described Iranian penetration into both Palestinian organizations and into the West Bank. And we know that Iran uh, funds Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and so on in Gaza. Uh, but I was did not really realize the depth of Iranian activity as opposed to aspirations in the West Bank. This causes me to ask, if in the 70s, and 80s, the PLO, which is, the, which is the Palestinian Authority under its original name in a sense, the PLO was a Soviet surrogate, client, trainee, recipient of arms and funds, all of those things. To what extent has the Palestinian cause been co-opted by an Iranian overseer, as opposed to simply an Iranian opportunist? That's an excellent question. 
And I think that historical parallel, uh, it fits, as you noted, the, the PLO uh, was a Soviet proxy of sorts. Uh, and for that matter, um, the, the, uh, the predecessor to the PLO, under Amin al-Husseini and his movement, was also, of course, had links to the authoritarian, leading authoritarian regime of its time, uh, the Nazis. Uh, so I think that Iran has faced, they, I mean, they face significant hurdles. And we've seen this, in fact, with uh, Islamic Jihad and its own rise, because, of course, Iran is Shia and the overwhelming majority of Palestinian uh, political uh, groups and terrorist groups are, are Sunni. So that that does uh, that has hindered uh, Islamic Jihad's growth in the past. Um, but that's that's just one one proxy. And Iran, importantly, has shown itself more than willing and more than able to fund Sunni terrorist groups, including uh, those uh, uh, the Palestinian variety. So I think that this this is very much a conscious effort and strategy on Iran's part. They say so in state media frequently. And groups such as Hamas are, have openly um, uh, heralded the support they received from Tehran. So Iran does exercise, I think, I don't want to say decisive influence, but considerable influence. The, there are no wars that are launched from Gaza uh, without Iran's approval, uh, not in my judgment. So um, I think that this is uh, it's all part of Iran's strategy. They want to, you know, folks from FTD, the Foundation for Defense and Democracies, Mark Dubowitz and others have noted that as what Iran would like to have happen is kind of a South Korea, North Korea situation. Be right up on Israel's doorstep, surround it. And if possible, of course, and this is a different subject for a different webinar, uh, be a nuclear power as well. Uh, so this is all part of their strategy to vanquish uh, the Zionist foe, as they call Israel. Okay, thanks. I, I appreciate that and it expands my understanding. Uh, all right, a couple questions combined into one. So uh, Abbas is no longer on the scene for whatever reason. He's, he's shuffled off this moral coil. He has been pushed aside. For whatever reason, he's no longer in charge. Does an internecine civil war break out between Hamas, the Palestinian Authority, other factions? Um, does the dismantling of the Palestinian Authority become a viable option for Israel? And would that mean reoccupation of Area A cities? Or would it be better for Israel to stand back and let the Palestinian factions fight each other to exhaustion? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much everything the kitchen sink, too. That is, that's a lot to take in. Um, you know, the safest answer as one of my philosophy professors back when I was an undergrad used to say is depends. And uh, so I, I think it would depend. Um, generally speaking, I think that certainly Israel's security establishment would prefer to leave the PA in place. Um, there's there's no question that I, and not in my mind, I you've only, you have never really had real transfers of power. Of course, this is the real problem. There are no institutions and rule of law. There's the, that entire tradition does not exist in Palestinian politics. And in fact, Palestinian politics, of course, is often synonymous with Palestinian terrorist groups. So you, when you don't have that sort of tradition, the peaceful transfer of power is not really a thing. Uh, Amin al-Husseini led the movement for 
nearly half a century. He had a meeting, I think it was in 69 with Arafat in Beirut, where he more or less handed over the keys and said, okay, this is, you know, I'm throwing my support to you. Arafat himself uh, had been around for several years, Fatah being formed, I think in 58. Uh, so that's a rare instance, however. What you did see in the 1930s, where you had, I think, the first real intifada, 1936, often called the Arab Revolt, uh, you did see significant internecine uh, Palestinian violence, clans fighting clans, uh, and the emergence of different groups. So that is, and this also, again, in the what's called the Second Intifada, 2000-2005, also happened then. Uh, that was also kind of a rare instance. The West had gotten a lot more involved. Uh, when I say the West, I mean in particular the United States. They're pushing for Abbas. Arafat had appointed Abbas to be his prime minister, despite the fact that the last several years uh, preceding that, the two men were not getting along. Abbas reportedly opposed Arafat's decision to launch the second intifada, according to Grant Rumley and Amir Tibbin in their biography of Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, and Arafat was, you know, trapped in a compound. Uh, so before he died, so the, the two instances that we have to go off of, uh, in the history of Palestinian politics suggests that I think that internecine violence is almost a certainty. There will probably be fighting. I think that's a, a fair bet. Um, and that a uh, peaceful transfer power is unlikely. Certainly, of course, with Iran meddling. And that's something I, I do. I emphasize this when I was describing Abbas Zaki, who was on Fatah's Central uh, Council. There, there was a history of the Islamic Republic supporting Fatah. Certainly, they did so under Arafat. And there are there have been voices, such as Zaki and others, who would like to return to those days. And, of course, there are others who are opposed. So I think all that makes for a pretty volatile uh, combination in terms of whether a boss is deposed, dies. And even on that note, I, uh, a boss's father lived to be over 100. So yes, boss is 87. He is obese. He reportedly smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. Man does not look well, but he could keep on, uh, as they say, keep trucking on. It, that's certainly a possibility. But I think that uh, planning for what happens next uh, needs to be something that the media and policymakers need to start considering actively. Okay. Uh, along these lines, and, a, and a, just a one-shot question, what, would you rate Hamas as having the best chance of the various Palestinian groups and the leadership of Hamas compared to other potential leaders you've named? Would you rate Hamas as having the most, the, the best chance of taking over in a post uh, Abbas environment. <laughs> I, I'm so reluctant to, to read the tea leaves, uh, but uh, it's always a risky bet. Uh, but I'll give it a shot. Yes, I, I think so. I think that, uh, you know, it, it would be easy for us in the West to look at the successive wars that Hamas has, has brought since taking over the Gaza Strip to look at the growing dissatisfaction of Palestinians living in Gaza under Hamas rule and thus conclude that uh, Hamas would not be a viable option. But I don't think that that's the case. Certainly uh, Hamas has the means, they have the, the morale, importantly. Uh, a lot of Fatah's leadership is quite old. That's not as much the case with Hamas. And of course, in, we do have an example there to go off of in 2006, Late 2006, uh, there was a bloody civil war between Hamas and Fatah, 
And Hamas won that decisively and seized the Gaza Strip. This was following elections in which uh, Fatah was trounced by Hamas. So I think that Hamas is a good bet. They do have the support of a nation state actor, Iran. They have the morale. They have the weapons. Uh, and I think it would be a, a mistake to, to underrate them accordingly. That being said, there is an existing security architecture in the West Bank uh, that would make that a bit difficult to say nothing. I mean, I don't think it would be an easy thing for them to do. Okay. Uh, absent Hamas, absent Iran and Iranian support, how significant, how much would this diminish the role of Hamas, Palestinian, Islamic, Jihad? I, you mentioned before the popular resistance committees. Uh, how much would this diminish their activity and their threat vis-a-vis -vis Israel? Tremendously. I, I think Iran is the big thorn in the side of, of regional peace and certainly they're the main actor, actor and most uh, effective actor in in committing uh, violence against Israel and and terrorism. Uh, Fatah, all the all these Palestinian movements are so reliant, exempting Fatah on, Iran, on Iranian support that I think that if Iran is removed from, removed from the equation, the possibilities of peace. Uh, and I'm not the sort of person that's going to be forecasting you know peace in the Middle East, but I think it it greatly improves. Iran is is the regional spoiler par excellence. Okay. Um, and I'm going to ask, this is another one of those kitchen sink questions, but it all comes to the, pretty much the same point. So you can, you'll have time to think about responding as the question unfolds, because I'm going to combine questions from two of our viewers with uh, one in-house question. So the in-house question is, it's been 30 years since the Oslo Accords and the expectation by some, at least, of a negotiated two-state solution and Israeli-Palestinian peace. It didn't happen. Is that because Palestinian nationalism is fundamentally about destroying Jewish nationalism, that is Israel and Zionism, rather than building a new Palestinian Arab state? Or are there other reasons? I'll take a go at that, and then I'm gonna go back to related questions from our viewers. Uh, in a word, yes. <laughs> okay. That, that, that is, I think, uh, the, the dominant reason. The construct of Palestinian nationalism is anti-Zionism. It's to, to, to oppose the existence of uh, Jewish self-determination. I think that's been the case since its inception. Um, and you know, a good example of that is, you know, in 1920, 1921, Amin al-Husseini wasn't agitating for Palestinian, uh, separate Palestinian Arab state. He was agitating to uh, for that portion of Palestine to join Syria and be part of the Southern Syrian movement under uh, King Faisal. And why? Because he viewed this as the best means to oppose Zionism. So I think from the very beginning, uh, the construct of Palestinian nationalism was predicated on, on anti-Zionism. And it's just been to oppose. It's not been to build institutions, not been to build the rule of law. And I think that's why we see ourselves in the situation where we're at today. Okay. So two of our 
viewers, related questions from two of our viewers. One asks, um, what can or what should Israel and the United States do? We've been focusing on the difficulties to help the region undergo a smoother and less harmful transition in the post-Abbas era. And a related question, separate but related, is given Iranian involvement, what does a Palestinian state look like? Um, is it possible even given the, the players that we have now? Well, um, I think that a Palestinian state with the players that we have now is uh, more of the same. With Iranian influence, you're looking at effectively another Gaza. Um, I don't see how there. I view it as I feel uh, very confident making this uh, prognostication. Israel will not allow Iranian an Iranian take over the West Bank. It just uh, it won't happen. I do. They that would be uh, another Operation Defensive Shield. They would be going in just as they did in in, uh, in the Second Intifada, and it would be. A really absolutely horrific thing i think in terms of casualties in terms of uh everything it would it would just not be a great scenario i think what the u.s can do uh if going back to my previous statement about iran being the chief spoiler and agitator um is it can you know cr actually crack down on iranian influence and support for terrorist groups and it can do so with the understanding that money is fungible uh so if you enact certain sanctions against as as the current administration has done against iran but leave other doors open that's not that's not effective that's not effective uh so i think that that is probably the best bet uh there are the the security forces there have been palestinian authority security forces that have perpetrated attacks um and there are some that are seemingly from what we can tell also cooperating with groups that are uh, opposed to abbas but that being said, there are Palestinian Authority security forces and officials that have a long history of relations, uh, good relations with the Israeli security establishment. So capitalizing off of those relations, I think it would be key uh, to preventing an Iranian takeover. But I think this is something, my understanding is that this is something that uh, Israel's security establishment uh, is quite concerned about, and understandably so. So beyond Israel working with those Palestinian figures, representatives that have been more or less cooperative on the security basis. Uh, is there anything else Israel can do? Is there anything that the United States is not doing besides greater sanctions, a more a, a tighter, more hermetic, hermetically sealed sanctions regime against Iran? Uh, is there anything else that either Washington or Jerusalem can do to smooth this post-transition, post-Abbas transition? Well, I think that one thing, uh, a real error that the that the United States has made in my judgment, and, and I should note, Cameron does not take policy positions, so this is purely my own uh, two cents, but the United States has given considerable aid to the Palestinian Authority, has trained the Palestinian Authority security forces, and the PA is utterly reliant it's completely dependent on, on foreign aid and the, so the u.s has tremendous leverage and it could have should have and should in the future use that leverage to actually encourage 
institution building and the rule of law. Instead, you have a situation where the PA continues to pay tax-deductible salaries to those who murder and maim Jews. And with one brief exception, uh, that has been the policy, and the U.S. has done nothing. It's, it has not used its leverage to encourage institution building. Uh, and that is something that is a bitter uh, bitter seed that's being sown, and we're going to be reaping it. So I think that using the leverage that we have to encourage durable institutions in the PA is, is essential. We have not done that for 30 years. Speaking of leverage, um, could the United States, could Israel separately or together, publicize the personal wealth of Abbas, his family, his sons who are, uh, as I read, notorious uh, for this, the, the accumulation of wealth from, from the aid that has gone, foreign aid that has gone to the Palestinian Authority and so on, conversion to personal wealth of Abbas and his family and close associates. Could Israel, the United States, even other Western governments, the EU, use this as leverage for better Palestinian behavior? They could. Um, the, the Abbas's kleptocratic ways and the kleptocratic ways of uh, the Fatah ruling elite is, is certainly no secret. It's no secret to the Palestinians. Poll, uh, polls of Palestinians consistently show they're well aware of Fatah's corruption. I think, and of course, so so is so is the West. Uh, this is another thing that we that we could potentially use to encourage better behavior. We have all these tools at our disposal, and we have tremendous leverage, but we don't seem to have a predilection for using it. Uh, we're getting close. We generally run. Uh, 45 to 50 minutes on this webinar. So we're getting toward the end of our session here. And I've got a couple of questions that still must be asked. So let me, I'll be quick and, and you'll do, you'll give us the Reader's Digest. People, if anybody here remembers what Reader's Digest was, uh, you'll give us the short uh, version. Uh, responses. Iran appears to be very close. We read that they've enriched uranium now to over 85, 87%. Basically, they're on the verge of, of being at bomb-enriched level, and Israel has said it won't tolerate this. If in the very near future Israel strikes Iran, what happens with these Iranian-backed regimes, uh, organizations in Gaza and the West Bank? That's they the second attack. front. They attack Israel. I, I think it uh, that would be something I would also be quite confident in predicting that Iran's proxies, uh, be it in Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, um, Iraq, uh, and potentially in the West Bank, and for that matter, potentially in Israel itself, uh, I think that they they attack Israel. Absolutely. You this said Israel itself. Uh, tell us a little bit in a couple of sentences about Iranian involvement with Israeli Arabs. So, and this is something that uh, JPC has done great work on, uh, highlighting the role of Iran smuggling weapons into Israel's Arab communities, uh, which have been used uh, for crime. And this is one of the reasons behind, uh, a, you know, an exploding homicide rate in Israeli Arab communities, which the Western press has talked about, but hasn't really looked at the reason uh, why that's occurring. And part of that's because Iran is purposely trying to sow social discord and violence. Uh, we know that in the last war, they actually had an operations center in Lebanon. This is something that Jonathan Shanzer of FTD has talked about uh, quite a bit. 
they ran an operations center in Lebanon during the last war, which was purposely focused on messaging to Israeli Arabs and to trying to incite uh, interethnic uh, violence, uh, which would be, of course, absolutely awful. So this Iran's ambitions and its strategy, I think, is, is quite clear. Uh, less clear is, unfortunately, Western resolve. Okay. This is, I think, related to the answer you just gave, but let's we'll clarify. This year, as you mentioned in your presentation at the beginning, it started with an unusually high rate of fatal, fatal Palestinian terror attacks on Israelis and Israeli security forces retaliating against Palestinian gunmen. And so this is a higher level of, of lethal activity that has gone on in recent years. Why is that? This is mostly Iranian, as you've seen, uh, instigation or other reasons as well. Both C, option C. It's uh, Iranian instigation, I think, yes. Um, and also uh, Abbas's power and influence in the West Bank. It's ebbing. It's ebbing. Uh, Cameron wrote a piece for Washington Examiner nearly two years ago talking about uh, Palestinian authorities diminishing rule in various West Bank towns and villages, some of which have even appealed to Jordan for help. Uh, so that I think that you know the king has the crown, but but his his rule is becoming increasingly frayed, and this is why we're uh, seeing an uptick in terrorist attacks. It's a huge huge part of it. Okay, I'm going to combine the two last questions, and as we have a tradition here, Shoshana Bryan traditionally likes to ask a last question that. Uh, admits at least of an upbeat or positive answer. Uh, I'm, I'll give you the second part of this. Maybe it has a uh, positive aspect. So the first is, are there of the Palestinian leaders, potential successors to Abbas that you mentioned earlier, are any of them people who, would, who could or would seriously, in your estimation, engage in negotiations with Israel, uh, what we would consider in the West compromise negotiations, or are these all river to the sea people? That's one. And then the last question you could think about as you're answering the first, uh, perhaps this one admits of an upbeat answer, would Saudi Arabia and or the Emirates help Israel repel Iranian efforts to manipulate the Palestinians in the West Bank to their advantage in the post-Abbas? Great questions. I do think that there would be the possibility of certainly of Arab support, uh, if, if private, from, say, the Saudis or the Emiratis, uh, of handling uh, an, or forestalling an Iranian takeover of the West Bank. I wouldn't expect that to be open, and I wouldn't frankly i wouldn't expect that to even be necessarily needed i'm not sure that there's something militarily that the saudis could provide that uh that the israelis don't already have and that brings me to my optimistic note is uh and this is rare so i'm glad it's being video recorded but <laughs> um israel has a world-class military it has a world-class intelligence uh be it the shin bet the Mossad. um they're exceptional and I think you'd be hard pressed to do better. I mean, Israel punches way above its weight for a country of its size militarily. So that is a, a reason for confidence. 
Uh, and what was what was remind me again of the uh, first of question. all the of all the potential successors to Abbas that you mentioned, are there any of them who have given some indication that they might be the the type to negotiate a real compromise, or are they all from the river to the sea people? It's certainly possible, and again, I really I'm reluctant to get into reading tea leaves. Um, I think that it would be possible that some of these leaders perhaps would be willing to enter into negotiations for Western support to shore up their own rule. Um, that would be the reason why. Now, do I see any of these potential candidates, Al-Sheikh, um, even Dalan, or any of them as being likely to actually reach a full-scale peace agreement with the Israelis? I'd be dubious on that aspect, on that front, just because I don't think that the Palestinian populace is there. And they're going to move in accordance, even though they're all autocrats, they're going to move in accordance with the Palestinian populace. I think that there are some figures, even Jabril Rajoub, as absolutely awful as he is, and I say awful because he's praised terrorist attacks and he was a convicted terrorist, or on the other front, Majid Faraj, the PA's intelligence head. These are still individuals that have longtime ties to Israel's security establishment that goes back at this point decades. So I think that, you know, uh, those might be better bets, perhaps, uh, if you're viewing this from the perspective of certain folks in the Israeli security establishment. Rajub and Delon, or I'm sorry, Rajub and uh, Farage are known quantities. And I think that having a known quantity uh, in the Middle East is sometimes better than the unknown. I am dubious. Some people have suggested that Marwan Barghouti, the imprisoned terrorist, would be more likely to reach a peace agreement because he has the street credentials. And that's a line of thinking that the West has displayed with Palestinian political leaders dating back to Amin al-Husseini 100 years ago. This notion that if we just uh, uh, cozy up to the, the hardliners, get the hardliners on board and reach an agreement with them, then the people will then follow. And we have 100 years of evidence to show that that's not the case. Didn't happen with Amin al-Husseini. He ended up uh, still uh, associating with the Nazis and carrying out terrorist attacks and being anti-Zionist. And it didn't happen with Arafat, despite whatever hand sh hands were shaken on the White House lawn 30 years ago. So those who do suggest that Barghouti could be the final individual to reach this elusive peace agreement between Palestinian uh, leaders and uh, Israel, I no, I do not uh, do not agree with that assessment. Sean Derns, thank you very much for this enlightening and detailed analysis of a problem, a situation that uh, that occupies a, a lot of our attention, uh, a lot of the time. We really appreciate it, and look forward to having you back sometime. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Mr. Rosenman.